Uncle, this is unexpected. Unexpected indeed. When I must search the patient's house for you and find you where? On the rooftop. What are you doing up here for the enemy and all the minions to see? I've been watching the Germans bomb the factories in the east end of the city. It's quite a display. Honestly, Wormwood, your preoccupation with this European war is trouble. You fill your reports with rubbish about it. The final result is no doubt important, but that is a matter for the High Command. I am not in the least interested in knowing how many people in England have been killed by bombs. In what state of mind they died, I can learn at the office that they were going to die sometime I knew already. Please keep your mind on your work. Yes, Uncle. Oh, well, since I'm here, I may as well enjoy the fireworks. Why have you come, sir? I've been giving some thought to the real trouble about the group your patient is socializing with, and I believe I found the answer. Oh? They are merely Christian. Merely Christian? They all have individual interests, of course, but the bond that remains is called mere Christianity. It is centered on the fundamentals, the pure orthodoxy of the Christian creed. Isn't that expected? Expected, but not what we want. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and social welfare. Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and psychical research. Christianity and vegetarianism. Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashionable idea that has a Christian coloring. And how do I do that? You must work on their horror of the same old thing. The same old thing? The horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart. An endless source of heresies in religion, folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage, and inconstancy in friendship. I'm not following, sir. You'll have to explain. Uh, the humans live in time and experience reality successively. To experience much of it, therefore, they must experience many different things. In other words, they must experience change. And since they need change, the enemy, being a hedonist at heart, has made change pleasurable to them just as he has made eating pleasurable. But since he does not wish them to make change an end in and of itself, he has balanced the love of change in them by a love of permanence. Right, but isn't that contradictory? Not at all. He has contrived to gratify both tastes together in the very world he has made by that union of change and permanence which we call rhythm. He gives them the seasons, each season different, yet every year the same, so that spring is always felt as a novelty, yet always as the recurrence of an immemorial theme. He gives them in his church a spiritual year. They change from a fast to a feast, but it is the same feast as before. 
Oh, wow. That was a good one. Pay attention, Wormwood. Sorry. Now, just as we pick out and exaggerate the pleasure of eating to produce gluttony, so we pick out this natural pleasantness of change and twist it into a demand for absolute novelty. This demand is entirely our workmanship. If we neglect our duty, men will be not only contented, but transported by the mixed novelty and familiarity of snowdrops this January, sunrise this morning, plum pudding this Christmas. Children, until we have taught them better, will be perfectly happy with a seasonal round of games in which football succeeds hopscotch as regularly as autumn follows summer. Only by our incessant efforts is the demand for infinite or unrhythmical change kept up. And the value of all of this is... is what, sir? It's valuable in various ways. It diminishes pleasure while increasing desire. Desire for what? Novelty! You see, the pleasure of novelty is, by its very nature, subject to the law of diminishing returns. It doesn't last. That's why we stoke the human's desire for it. They work harder and harder for a novelty that yields little in return. And continued novelty costs money, so the desire for it spells avarice or unhappiness or both. And again, the more rapacious this desire, the sooner it must eat up all the innocent sources of genuine pleasure and lead on to those things the enemy forbids. We do this by inflaming their fear of the same old thing? Yes! For example, we have recently made the arts less dangerous to us than perhaps they have ever been. Lowbrow and highbrow artists alike are being regularly drawn into fresh excesses of lasciviousness, unreason, cruelty, and pride. Yeah, I like the theatre. Finally, the desire for novelty is indispensable if we are to produce trends or vogues. The use of trends in thought is to distract the attention of men from their real dangers. We direct the trendy outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is least in danger and fix its approval on the virtue nearest to that vice which we are trying to make endemic. The game is to have them all running about with fire extinguishers whenever there is a flood and all crowding to that side of the boat which is already nearly submerged. Thus, we make it fashionable to expose the dangers of spiritual enthusiasm at the very moment when they are all really becoming worldly and lukewarm. A century later, when we are really making them all drunk with emotion, the trendy outcry is directed against the dangers of intellectualism. <laughs> Cruel ages are put on guard against their sentimentality, feckless and idle ones against respectability, lecherous ones against puritanism. Yes. And whenever all men are really hastening to be slaves or tyrants, we make liberalism the prime worry. <laughs> but the greatest triumph of all is to elevate this horror of the same old thing into a philosophy so that nonsense in the intellect may reinforce corruption in the will. How so? The enemy loves platitudes. 
of a proposed course of action, he wants men, so far as I can see, to ask very simple questions. Is it righteous? Is it prudent? Is it possible? Now, if we can keep men asking, is it in accordance with the general movement of our time? Is it progressive or reactionary? Is this the way that history is going? They will neglect the relevant questions. And the questions they do ask are, of course, unanswerable, for they do not know the future. And what the future will be depends very largely on just those choices which they now invoke in the name of the future. As a result, while their minds are buzzing in this vacuum, we have the better chance to slip in and bend them to the action we have decided on. And great work has already been done. Whew, their minds aren't the only ones buzzing. <laughs> Once upon a time, men knew that some changes were for the better, and others for the worse, and others again indifferent. We have largely removed this knowledge. For the descriptive adjective unchanged, we have substituted the emotional adjective stagnant. We have trained them to think of the future as a promised land which favored heroes attain, not as something which everyone reaches at the rate of 60 seconds per minute or 60 minutes an hour, whatever he does, whoever he is. Well, it looks like the Germans have cleared off for the night. I do hope that you won't continue to waste your time like this. You should be with your patient exploiting his anxiety and fear during these air raids. Oh, don't worry, Uncle. His mother's there to do that. Oh, excellent. 